Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Malou Innocent discusses America's perilous partners. Australian Human Rights Commissioner Tim Wilson discusses the importance of property rights. Sean Donnan of the Financial Times talks about the next big trade deal. And security expert Bruce Schneier discusses the price of surveillance. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Candidates have been making uh, some, I suppose, less than concrete proposals with respect to uh, taxes and spending. Here to talk about the tax proposals offered by various candidates for president, Dan Mitchell, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Nicole Kading, a budget analyst here at the Cato Institute. So, uh, Dan, I'll begin with you. Um, As we were discussing right before we started recording, these plans are just talking about taxes. And, of course, spending's the problem. In the long run, you can't have good tax policy unless you get spending under control. So you're exactly right about that. And while it's good, and I'm certainly applauding the fact that many of these candidates are putting forth proposals to uh, trim off some of the more onerous features of the Internal Revenue Code, unless there are equally aggressive, bold plans to somehow restrain and control government spending, I'm not sure we should take them seriously. All right. So uh, of the candidates who have uh, proposed uh, their tax plans, which of these do you take to be the least realistic? Well, we don't really know what Ben Carson's plan is other than a flat tax of some sort between 10 and 15 percent, which, of course, is great in theory. I'd like to see more details. Donald Trump and Bobby Jindal have huge tax cut plans, which, of course, It's like putting catnip in front of me. I like a lot of the provisions in there. uh, But Donald Trump, from what I can tell, doesn't want to touch the entitlements at all, may even want to make them worse. So it's impossible to see how his plan would work. I think Bobby Jindal is probably more committed to genuine entitlement reform. So at least he's in the right ballpark, or at least he wants to move in the right direction. A lot of the other candidates like Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, uh, uh, they have, and Marco Rubio as well, they have relatively specific tax plans, and they all are making the right noises about entitlement reform and spending restraint. Uh, but I, I would feel more comfortable if they were as specific on the spending side as they are on the tax side. All right. So, Nicole Kading, are there any candidates, uh, pr- any provisions of any particular candidate's plan that uh, jump out at you as being particularly uh, positive or uh, new and positive? I think what a lot of the candidates do, particularly on the business side, is where there's a lot of innovation and they're all moving in the right direction. They all consolidate or decrease the rate of corporate income taxes. In some cases, they're actually eliminating the corporate income tax. They're handling in terms of the taxation of international businesses. They're moving in the right direction as well. So these are all really positive developments. Um, but again, there are some things, and particularly on the individual side, that that um, I'm not very excited about, such as, uh, for instance, Mark, Marco Rubio's plan includes a very large increase in the child tax credit. Um, moves the current tax, child tax credit is about $1,000 per child, and there is a cap on income for that. Uh, he would move to $2,500 for 
all children. Um, that's a very, very large tax giveaway. It's functionally spending in the tax code. And so we're do- giving a large handout to parents um, and really would prefer that not to be in the plan. Well, it, as in the business context, I often wonder oh, what business is it of mine whether or not you invest in capital equipment and what business is it of mine whether or not you have a kid and it only really becomes my business when uh, some particular uh, benefit is granted for uh, those activities in the tax code. On the business side, it should be a very simple thing to calculate. If a business takes in X dollars and then they spend Y dollars, their profit is the difference between Guess what? X and Y. Unfortunately, our tax code doesn't have that simple sort of cash flow basis. Uh, and, and the good news is that a lot of the candidates are moving in the direction of that kind of cash flow basis. But I, I, I would throw out something that worries me here. Rand Paul and Ted Cruz both have a value-added tax as part of their plans. Uh, and that rubs me the wrong way, even though in their cases, they're doing it for a good reason. They're using the value-added tax to finance much lower tax rates. They're using the value-added tax to finance the elimination of the payroll tax. Uh, they're using it to uh, to uh, basically get rid of the corporate income tax as we know it. But what they call a business transfer tax or business flat tax is really a VAT. And I don't worry about what would happen to that VAT if they were in the White House. But let's say it's 2032 and Chelsea Clinton is our president. Uh, If we have a European-style VAT and we haven't completely gotten rid of the income tax, then I worry that we could have made a very big mistake, even if the people pushing for that policy today are doing it for a good reason. Now, one of the key problems with value-added taxes, if I've understood your work in the past correctly, is that it's hard to pin down. It is not very transparent, like a a consumption tax would be. The value-added tax is hidden. The businesses collect the tax. It's basically a giant withholding tax on workers' wages and other forms of income. Uh, But since all the taxes are collected before you get your paycheck, you have no idea that the business is paying this giant tax on your behalf. Uh, Now, it is a single-rate consumption-based tax, like the flat tax, so, so why am I concerned? If we were repealing the 16th Amendment, and guaranteeing that no income tax could ever spring to life again, then I would say kudos uh, to Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, uh, because then if we have that future president, Chelsea Clinton, in the year 2032, uh, the worst she can do is just try to raise the VAT rate. What, what, What worries me is if we have the VAT and an income tax, then a future statist president uh, can go hog wild. And that's exactly what we saw in Europe. Uh, Government wasn't that much bigger in Europe than it was in the United States back in the 1960s. But once the VAT was adopted beginning later in that decade, that's when the burden of government spending skyrocketed in Europe. And and Marco Rubio, I think, has raised specifically that uh, problem with uh, switching to some other form of taxation to eliminate the uh, personal income tax or the income taxes is that 
it's the 16th Amendment is still on the books. Well, and I think one thing to also consider is, the, as the VAT is described under Rubio or under Cruz and Paul's plans, it would be collected at the business level, which means the average worker is not going to see it. And while we want low rates, we want flat rates, we want things that are simple, we also want taxes that are transparent. And so if workers aren't seeing the burden of that tax, it could be very easy for politicians in the future to increase those rates to increase governmental revenue. So if you think of the example of the property tax, Everyone hates the property tax, but why do you hate a property tax? It's because you physically write a check every six months to your county government. And so if we move to this VAT tax, uh, we're going to have these issues where it would be very easy for politicians to increase the rate in the future. All right. So uh, with respect to the Democrats, is there anything there worth mentioning? They just want higher taxes, period. Now, interestingly, uh, neither Bernie Sanders nor Hillary Clinton have embraced a VAT, but you know what? I bet they are secretly keeping their fingers crossed that somehow Republicans deliver it for them. Now, I don't mean to pick on Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, because as I said before, what they're trying to do it for a good reason, because they're, they're trying to eliminate and lower other taxes. I would just prefer that they actually get rid of these taxes and then just have a VAT as our sole source of revenue if they're going to go down that path. But we can also pick holes in some of the other candidates' plans. Uh, Nicole already mentioned Marco Rubio's child credit, and she said it's functionally equivalent to spending. Well, in, to some degree, it actually is spending because a big part of the plan is for a refundable tax credit. Now, refundable tax credit in Washington wonk language is really just the government sending a check to people who don't earn enough to pay taxes. Uh, so it would be, as Rand Paul said in the debate, uh, it would be a new government entitlement program. Now, again, Rand, Marco Rubio's tax plan in general, just like Ted Cruz's plan and Rand Paul's plan, and for that matter, Jeb Bush's plan and a lot of the others, it's a much, much better tax code than we have with the current system. But of course, our job is to portray the ideal tax policy and, and measure these various plans against that ideal. Now, uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, it's none of my business if you have a kid or you buy some capital equipment. Uh, it's also none of my business if you buy a house. Uh, Dan, you and I have discussed uh, previously that Jeb Bush tax plan would alter to some degree this uh, big giveaway, the uh, mortgage interest deduction. Almost all of the candidates are talking about constraining or limiting the mortgage interest deduction. I think all of them get rid of the state and local tax deduction, and kudos to them for that. Why on earth the federal tax code is subsidizing uh, politicians like Jerry Brown and Governor Cuomo in New York uh, is beyond me. Uh, so there are efforts to restrain some of these uh, preferences in the tax code. That's one of the good features of these plans. Now, do they completely get rid of all the tax preferences so we get a Hoverbushka-style flat tax? As far as I know, Ben Carson's the only one who's embracing a pure flat tax. And as we mentioned earlier, he hasn't even pinned down what exactly the rate would be. Yeah, and I think the other thing to, to really come back to is the fact that these tax plans are all positive steps in the right direction. They're all much, much better than the current tax code. But until we actually see spending reforms from any of these candidates, um, I really can't put a lot of faith into these, these reforms. Right now, CBO says that we're going to have a $7 trillion deficit over the next 10 years. If you look at a plan like Trump's, you would add another $10 trillion to the deficit, um, even if you account for the economic growth that will be generated from the tax plan. So until these candidates step out of the box and actually propose concrete reforms to our entitlement systems, to our defense spending, and to discretionary spending. Um, this is all great, but take it with a grain of salt. To that end, what have candidates suggested about spending? 
there are, uh, Rand Paul at least, has submitted federal budgets that made some, I would say, fairly radical reductions in, in, in overall federal spending. They didn't go very far, but uh, to, to what extent are candidates actually making uh, substantial noises about federal spending? Rand Paul does have his five-year budget plan that he's introduced that does have all sorts of good program terminations, shutting down certain government departments, reforming entitlements. Uh, Marco Rubio, to his credit, uh, coming from Florida, a state with a heavy senior population, has explained that you do need to reform Medicaid and Medicare in ways to put those programs on a sounder footing. Uh, Ted Cruz just uh, wrote something in National Review the other day where he proposed getting rid of, I think it's four different cabinet-level departments. So there is some noise. They're just not as specific uh, in terms of what has to be done as they are on the tax side. It's sort of like they're they're outlining in great detail what we're going to get for dessert, but they're not really explaining in much detail what vegetables we're going to eat beforehand. And then we do have several candidates like Donald Trump or Mike Huckabee who are being very explicit in that they would not touch entitlement spending, which is clearly the cause of the growth in federal spending in the, in the medium in the long term. They would not touch it. And in fact, they're hinting that they might actually expand eligibility for these programs. Um, it's a little unclear as to what they want to do. But I think you can also then look at the candidates that have gubernatorial experience, look at their records as governors and what have they done. Uh, and what you find is Bobby Jindal is the only candidate who was with gubernatorial experience who has actually cut spending while governor. As opposed to John Kasich, who expanded uh, Medicaid. He took that part of Obamacare and rammed it through over the objections of a state legislature. Uh, now, he was pretty good when he was budget committee chairman in Washington. So again, it's not as if any of these candidates are libertarian dream candidates, and it's not as if any of them are purely evil statists. You have to just look at the good and the bad. Let's go back to this value-added tax for, for just a, a few minutes here. This is a tax on stages of production for final goods. Is that about right? Well, there's actually two different types of value-added taxes. There's the credit invoice VAT that they use in Europe, and that works in just the way you described. The subtraction method VAT, which is what Ted Cruz and Rand Paul are talking about, it's a VAT. It has the exact same tax incidence, but it more operates like a expanded version of the corporate income tax. The, the simple way to think about what it does, it's another income tax because what happens under our subtraction method VAT is that all the wages that companies pay to workers, they have to withhold and pay tax on those wages before they ever send a paycheck to their workers. So you as a worker, you might get a paycheck for $500 or $1,000. You don't realize that there's already 15% taken out of that. And then, of course, you have to pay income tax on top of that. So it's a double income tax buried inside a business tax system. All right. So how do people like uh, Paul and Cruz defend uh, double taxation on income? They defend it by pointing out, and this is you know, perfectly fair, well, we're getting rid of the corporate income tax as it currently stands and replacing it with this business VAT tax. Uh, they say they're getting rid of payroll taxes. Uh, they say they're using some of the revenue to lower income tax rates. Uh, uh, Ted Cruz's income tax rate is 10% on households, and Rand Paul's is 14.5%. Uh, but they're not really admitting that when you have this business VAT, that it's not just 14.5% in Rand Paul's 
plan, it's another 14.5%. And Ted Cruz is saying, I have a 10% tax on household wages, but he's not really admitting that you have to add the other 16% on top of it. Uh, now, again, their tax proposals, if I knew that they were going to be in the White House forever and there was never going to be a left-wing president with a left-wing Congress interested in expanding government, I might be willing to take a chance and say, okay, yes, let, let's because on paper, they have much better tax systems than what we have today. What about the effects of a value-added tax on the efficiencies of businesses themselves? Part of the advantage of moving to a vet is it's actually a very efficient tax. You're moving, you're taking a very complicated corporate structure, you're talking about things about how do you expense goods, how do you depreciate goods, how do you handle deductibility of debt and interest and all these things, and you're making it very, very simple, which is why there's going to be, according to a lot of the analysis, a great deal of economic growth would be created by moving to these plans. So in general- but moving I, away from other plans. Moving away from our current structure. So again, all of these plans are positive steps in the right direction. Um, I just think that Dan and I would prefer that Cruz and Paul had moved a slightly different direction on their corporate taxation than using the VAT. Yeah, here's the key thing to understand. Everything that we want to achieve in terms of having a tax system that minimizes the damage to the private sector uh, per dollar collected, everything that you want to achieve, you get with a Haw-Rabushka flat tax. So why reinvent the wheel why go through the risk of putting a VAT and an income tax in the same plan when maybe in the future there's a president and a Congress that don't have the interests of the American people in mind? That's, that's what irks me a little bit is that, is that I think they're being too clever by half. So your suggestion is we have fewer taxes, fewer kinds of taxes that are more transparent and instead of this multiple taxes cutting several of them in half uh, that are relatively less transparent. Yes. I worry about the long-run downside risk of whatever plan you have. Let's say you do a pure Haw-Rabushka flat tax. Are we guaranteed victory forever? No. You can always degenerate back to the current system. But if you have a, a some sort of flat tax and a VAT, well, then if you lose, you degenerate into being France because it's the capacity to collect revenue is so much higher with a dual flat tax VAT than there is with just a flat tax. And that's part of the reason why the rates are quite low under Cruz and Paul's plan is because it's hitting such a large part of the economy. You can keep the rates relatively low and actually increase the amount of revenue you're collecting. All right, folks, we're going to leave it there. Dan Mitchell, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and Nicole Kading, Budget Analyst at the Cato Institute. If you'd like to learn more about the various tax plans of candidates for public office. You can read more at Cato.org. The United States has cut some pretty bad deals with unsavory regimes in order to receive less than clear benefits. Some of those alliances have been necessary, but America's history of getting into bed with authoritarians has produced some profoundly negative results. Malou Innocent is co-author of Perilous Partners, The Benefits and Pitfalls of America's Alliances with Authoritarian Regimes. She spoke at the Cato Institute in October. In August, CIA Director John Brennan walked back a previous claim that U.S. intelligence agents never work with human rights abusers. Brennan said, and I'm paraphrasing, we strive to avoid working with individuals who abuse human rights. 
But in some cases we do because of the vital and critical intelligence those services provide. Director Brennan's comments send two important messages, both of which Ted and I examine in the book Perilous Partners. The first is that US officials are concerned with their connection to human rights abuses. Number two, working with human rights abusers is unavoidable in statecraft. What I want to explore with you is the first point, that US officials, and many Americans for that matter, are concerned with our connection to abuses of human rights. And my basic schema is broken down into three parts. The first is hypocrisy. It's a charge we often hear in discussions about US foreign policy, and it's because we see an inconsistency in our, in our values and, our, and then in our actions. The second is the humanitarian reasons. When we sacrifice our fundamental values, we see that it comes at enormous humanitarian costs, and as well, it can retard the development of foreign civil societies. And third is counterproductive, in the sense that our alliances with authoritarian regimes, just like other client regimes, can sometimes pull the United States into conflicts divorced from its vital interests. So the first point about the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of US foreign policy. There is a profound disconnect between our professed ideals, the ideals that we revere and pay deference to and we claim make us exceptional, including individual rights, peace, democracy, and the rule of law, and then our underlying behaviors that manifest as policy, be that destabilizing and overthrowing foreign governments, providing financial and military assistance to corrupt and brutal dictators, or underwriting the crimes of monstrous regimes. But what do people really mean when they say hypocrisy? When you say hypocrisy, it means that the United States claims to have a certain set of values and beliefs and doesn't adhere to them in their actions. I think the criticism really is one of a double standard in the sense that we see an inconsistent application of a certain set of principles for similar situations. And one example of that would be during the Arab Spring. And two examples of that would be Libya and Egypt. As we saw with Libya, the United States condemned Muammar Gaddafi's crackdown and pro-democracy demonstrators and even premised the 2011 humanitarian intervention on basically humanitarian grounds in saying that Washington would not stand for brutal dictators suppressing and violently suppressing pro-democracy advocates. Meanwhile, next door in Egypt, we see that even though Hosni Mubarak's 30-year reign of authoritarianism fell, Washington still was offering very tepid criticisms of Cairo's crackdown on both pro-Morsi demonstrators and pro-democracy demonstrators. And that's because since 1978, Egypt has received over $60 billion in US military and financial assistance, over half of that to the purchase of US manufactured weapons and arms. But then also, the United States also considers Egypt an anchor of stability in the Middle East, because it was successfully pulled out of the pan-Arab struggle against Israel. Of course, it's an odd construction in some respects, because Egypt would have the most to lose in any future conflict with Israel. Moreover, the current al-Sisi regime, similar to its predecessors, Hosni Mubarak and Anwar Sadat, would, would uh, of course, uh, through the denial of, of free speech, it, it realizes that it can ignore the conditions on aid because they know that US officials will not revoke US assistance. This is a problem of the sort of patron-client ties that we have. And we notice that USAID, unfortunately, underwrites a regime that perpetuates its power through the denial of free speech, arbitrary imprisonment, and other forms of savage repression. So that we see the different standards and apply to one situation and to others. And there are many examples of this, both during the Arab Spring and during the Cold War. And certainly this double standard charge or this hypocrisy charge can damage our credibility and delegitimize our allies. And even though it's very powerful, it's persuasive, and it's a valid argument to have, it doesn't go far enough in providing an argument for opposing US alliances with authoritarian states. And this leads to my second point. 
in the sense that we see that when we do harm our values, it doesn't happen in just merely an abstract or philosophical sense, but in truly tangible and heinous ways. When we claim that our values are universal because they apply equally to everyone, irrespective of background, and yet at the same time, we overthrow governments, we provide a prop to the course of institutions of foreign governments, we assert for foreign people their agency and their self-determination, and it undermines their ability to find out how best to achieve their potential, and it prevents them from asserting meaningful change over their own political systems. One example of this is in Guatemala, similar to Syria, Cuba, Iran, and Congo, and other nationalist independence movements during the Cold War that the United States tried to undermine. In 1954, the United States helped overthrow the democratically elected government in uh, President Arbenz. The agrarian land reform that he, that he imposed nationalized over a million acres of land, and he gave it to peasants. Of course, most of that land belonged to a giant US corporation called United Fruit Company. In the United States Army, the United States helped the uh, Guatemalan military replace Arbenz with a pro-American puppet that overturned the program. The coup was called Operation Success, and it led to three decades of military rule that slaughtered peasants, tortured regime critics, and burned insurgents alive. At least 200,000 Guatemalans perished after Operation Success. Another example, moving from Central America to South Asia, is Bangladesh. West Pakistan's US-backed military junta maintained the power of ethnic Punjabis in West Pakistan. And what they did is that they ignored and failed to address the underlying socioeconomic grievances of the ethnic Bengalis in East Pakistan. And what became known as the 1971 Bangladesh crisis, West Pakistan used US tanks and planes to suppress Bengali separatists. Journalists estimated that more than one million Bengalis were slaughtered in this crisis, and that's the low end estimate. U.S. officials in India and in Dhaka, in West Pakistan's capital, described West Pakistan's actions as a selective genocide. Henry Kissinger, then National Security Advisor under President Richard Nixon, later acknowledged in his memoirs about the Bangladesh crisis, quote, there was some merit to the charge of moral insensitivity, unquote. Now, beyond charges first of hypocrisy and, of course, of the humanitarian cost of policy, there's also another problem of backing tyrants. And this is, of course, the, an issue when it comes to backing any sort of client regime, is that it often pulls the United States into foreign conflicts divorced from its vital interests in security. And two examples illustrate this point. The first is Vietnam. Of course, the argument for intervening in Indochina was the domino theory the notion that the rise of a nationalist independent movement in, in Saigon would lead to a demonstration effect across the region and strengthen communism both in Southeast Asia and encourage communists to strike elsewhere. In 1963, with Washington's encouragement, the South Vietnamese military overthrew and executed President Diem. Political chaos ensued in Saigon and Washington Americanized the war. More than half a million US troops would fight in Vietnam, more than 58,000 would perish, and it led to bitter disagreements that tore our own society apart. The second example, moving from Southeast Asia to the Arabian Peninsula, is Saudi Arabia. In August 1990, Saudi Arabia remained militarily too weak to defend itself when Iraqi troops invaded Kuwait. As a result, the United States marshaled an international coalition with broad Arab support to oust the Iraqis from Kuwait. But as former Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz said of the 12-year US troop presence in Saudi Arabia, quote, it's been a huge recruiting device for Al-Qaeda. In fact, if you look at bin Laden, one of his principal grievances was the presence of so-called crusader forces on the Holy Land, Mecca and Medina, unquote. 
What Wolfowitz was getting at is that Muslims took umbrage with the stationing of US troops on Muslim holy soil. And also, bin Laden actually exploited the fact that Washington supported what he called, quote, apostate regimes in Riyadh, Cairo, Amman, Islamabad, and elsewhere. We must remember that Saudi Arabia bans free speech, political parties, and competitive elections. It has very austere social restrictions on religious freedom and women's rights. And it has a barbaric penal system of public floggings, beheadings, and crucifixions. An added problem of the 1990-1991 Persian Gulf War is, again, the idea that we violate our own principles. Again, the double standard charge comes up again. In the sense that the United States claimed that Iraq's invasion of Kuwait was both illegal and a violation of international law. Now, fast forward to 2003, the United States invades Iraq, overthrows Saddam Hussein, and does so without UN approval. Again, exposing a double standard and how we push other countries around. Let me conclude my remarks by tying these historical examples together. Number one, the hypocrisy or double standard charge. One that we often hear in discussions of US foreign policy, and one that's, I think, very powerful and very persuasive, because we do see an undermining of our credibility and a delegitimizing of our allies and the legitimacy of our allies, especially in the eyes of their own people. But still, as some would argue, and I'm sure many in this room, it still does not go far enough in providing an argument for opposing relationships with authoritarian regimes. That leads to the second argument how our values become sacrificed at enormous humanitarian cost and retards the development of foreign civil societies. And third, these relationships, like many other client relationships, have the potential to pull the United States into foreign conflicts divorced from its security. Indigenous peoples' land rights around the world have long been violated or weakened by hostile or wrong-headed government policies. Tim Wilson, Australia's Human Rights Commissioner, speaking at the Cato Institute in October, explains why property rights are human rights and how legal impediments still undermine the ability of Aboriginal and other Indigenous Australians to use their land titles as they see fit. I can't think of an issue that needs more attention around the world, particularly when we're talking about uh, driving the fundamental challenges that uh, continue to plague societies around under, um, that undermine liberties than the importance of reasserting the primacy of property rights as part of the human rights discussion. So in Australia, we have a very significant challenge where Indigenous people uh, over 200 years have been denied access to their land and uh, as a consequence of European settlement. During that process, uh, there has been continual efforts to uh, secure that land by Aboriginal activists, uh, looking at opportunities through courts and legal processes to have full recognition of their traditional lands. Uh, in uh, the 1970s, there was significant progress towards establishing a title in some parts of our country under a Land Rights Act. But in terms of other lands existing in our states and it's part of our federalist structure, the same principles did not exist with the same degree of flexibility. And it wasn't until the 1990s through uh, a significant case in the equivalent of our Supreme Court, the High Court, that recognised a form of common law native title that gave back Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people control of their land, uh, at least at a superficial level, that they were able to secure some form of title. But since then, both through a legislative process as well as through courts, there's been a diminishing in the role and importance of that title to the point where it really is a superficial right. 
it has no significant um, capacity to be used and utilised uh, for economic development. It has an enduring cultural value. It has an enduring um, uh, uh, contribution towards Aboriginal heritage, and that is the superficial right that exists above it. But when you go to the capacity for it to be used by, for purposes of economic development, it's not so straightforward. Um, the law doesn't simply allow it, and equally cultural values that sit behind Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's attitudes towards their land, particularly around collective governance arrangements, means that you have a situation where land is not fully utilised. So as Human Rights Commissioner, one of my key uh, tasks is working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to seek constructive reform that recognises and respects the enduring cultural connection that they have to their, their land, but also to enable it as a, a, a key contribution uh, towards uh, their economic development. And that requires taking them as much as anything else on a journey because after a long period of land rights battles, understandably, they're very wary of the risks that can occur when you have a form of title and expose it to uh, uh, using, as say, for instance, the basis of security for raising finance and capital so that they're able to achieve development. In the past, they've uh, avoided those risks by simply bringing in external parties, particularly through um, mining interests and the like, who develop their land in their place, which means they're able to preserve title and create revenue streams, but it doesn't mean that they are in the same position to be able to do what they want with their land. And in fact, you know, in terms of law and practice, it's actually easier for somebody like myself to develop their land than it is for uh, them as individual people. Uh, so there's a really significant need to have a discussion about how uh, they're able to do that. And at the start of this year, we had a big meeting in Broome, which is in the northwest of our country in May, that brought together the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership of Australia to start that conversation. And it's been a very interesting conversation that we've had because what uh, Indigenous leaders have consistently raised with us is, I would argue, a very clear parallel between the issues they face and a broad libertarian philosophy, particularly around issues of excessive regulation that undermine their self-determination and actually amounts to entrenching poverty because they are not able to do what they land in the same way that exists with statutory titles, such as the one that sits uh, and underpins the title on my own home or any other type of uh, ordinary property that exists in Australia. We also have significant challenges around taxation arrangements that impose huge bills on them for land that they've never had the opportunity to develop. And to put that into perspective, if you haven't been able to uh, develop your land over a period of 200 years, yet you're expected to immediately meet the financial cost of 21st century taxation and regulation, it has a fundamentally, fundamentally deleterious impact. And that's particularly important in terms of environmental regulation. In the northern part of our country, at a place called uh, Cape York in the great state of Queensland, uh, there have been significant overlays that have been put, environmental overlays over people's land, uh, which has basically meant they're not able to use it for any sort of extractive industries or primary uh, industries, particularly in the forestry sector for where it is very rich. Um, so the opportunity to be able to use that land to be and its natural assets to achieve economic development is significantly curtailed in a way that somebody like myself uh, or, or the rest of Australia has not had the same restrictions over a long period of time. 
and that, of course, has the direct impact of undermining their right to development. But there are still also significant legal restrictions that stop land being used as the basis of equity to raise the capital to be entrepreneurial. And it often astonishes me how much people like myself and uh, others in, uh, in Australian society need to be reminded how much of our economic development is underpinned by the capacity to use that basic form as title as a basis to raise capital. And from there, to be able to use it to invest in their future and create new opportunities. So in our significant meeting in May in Broome, we brought together Indigenous leaders to talk about how we start to resolve some of these fundamental challenges looking at the importance of flexible legal instruments to enable communities to use their title as they see fit, including with different ownership structures that also meet their needs. The need also to develop complementary new business models that ensure finance can be raised and that risk can be priced so communities can build their economic opportunities and fundamentally integrate them in the rest of the market economy in a way that they're currently denied. It's essentially an issue of unequal access to capitalism and mechanisms to raise finance for the development of housing and ownership. Because not only through the collective arrangements are people denied the opportunity to be able to raise finance, but also to be able to access the basic security necessary to then go on to build private homes and ownership. And from there, of course, it doesn't just undermine them in a collective sense, it also undermines them in an individual sense. That, of course, opens up a huge Pandora of cultural attitudes uh, that need to be discussed and recognised amongst Indigenous communities, because in the past, uh, their attachment, rightly so, has been to a sense of collective identity and also survivalism that comes from collective identity about the preservation of their culture and their heritage and their way of life prior to white settlement of this country. So what we've started isn't just a conversation uh, amongst Indigenous leaderships about the importance of the issues that sit outside of them and are regulated by government, but also started a conversation within Indigenous communities about how they're going to manage their collective affairs in the future particularly how we recognise the need for individual entrepreneurialism in the framework of collective, discuss uh, collective governance discussions and how that then has an on-flow effect around pricing risk and dealing with the various challenges that exist when you're working with other parties, say, for instance, financial institutions that want to be able to lend capital to be able to develop their land, particularly where it has particular value. And I say particular value because it's not just in the desert. In many cases, you have titles sitting across some of the most uh, beautiful beaches in our country, uh, which are ripe for opportunities for ecotourism, well, tourism generally, but of course, the narrative is uh, uh, culturally sensitive and environmentally sensitive tourism uh, to create opportunities for uh, employment uh, and development uh, across Australia's Indigenous communities. There's also, of course, a huge potential in many rural and regional and remote communities to develop opportunities for mining and extractive industries, as well as, uh, as many other uh, sectors such as agriculture. When we started this conversation, uh, there was, of course, a significant buy-in of Indigenous communities because they became acutely aware of how much the denial of the freedom to exercise their property rights was undermining the potential of their own communities. 
but are now deeply allies very closely with the objectives of our own government. Because as a nation, it's become increasingly aware that the, uh, the role and the title holdings of Indigenous communities is so large uh, that it has a direct financial and economic impact on the rest of our nation. And uh, if we want to see uh, the sort of industries that can grow and create the opportunities for the next generation of Australians, uh, uh, whether Indigenous or not, we need to take advantage of our natural assets. Now that runs into enormous challenges domestically with environmental groups and various other groups who often want to see Indigenous communities uh, uh, preserved in what they would argue is their natural habitat and their natural culture and natural attitudes. And that is part of the discussion that we need to keep driving forward because it is not acceptable for uh, Indigenous communities to be held against their will in a time warp of economic poverty because it suits the interests of wealthy people in capital cities. The Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership negotiations were launched in 2013 with the pronouncement that a comprehensive deal would be reached by the end of 2014. But after two years and ten rounds of negotiations, an agreement is nowhere in sight. Sean Donnan of the Financial Times discussed the TTIP's prospects at the Cato Institute in October. I think it's important to remember, and I think this sometimes gets lost in, in, in the discussion uh, of uh, the detail that, you know, TTIP is still uh, a valid endeavor. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's a big and valid endeavor. Uh, worth stepping back and thinking, okay, you know, th th this is a trade relationship uh, that is as important as it gets uh, in the world today. Uh, something like $800 billion uh, worth of trade or more uh, uh, last year. Uh, and also, it's about the future of, of, of trade agreements. The second point that I think about is that, is that great uh, question I get from my editors, which is, okay, this is big. Can you actually get it done? Or can they actually get it done? And if so, when? Uh, and when you're in the daily news business, this sometimes turns into a slightly depressing conversation. Um, I think the question, you know, the answer that I offer my, my editors nowadays is yes, it'll get done, but probably not anytime soon. And that may not be uh, the answer that some people in, in, in business and, and others who have a shorter um, horizon of thinking uh, may want to hear, but I, I, I do think that increasingly, in my mind, uh, it's hard to see this getting done uh, during the Obama administration, and that raises all sorts of uh, interesting questions. Um, I think they're going to try to get it done. Clearly, they are trying to get it done. Mike Froman and Cecilia Malmstrom recently agreed to accelerate uh, the negotiations. Uh, but really, everything has to go incredibly smoothly to get even close, and as one senior official involved uh, told me when we talked after the, 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 the Frohm and Malmstrom meeting uh, recently, really what we're laying out in front of us just gets us to the mid-game. And I think that is uh, something that is important, especially in the context, and I use TPP as a reference point, 
TPP, for those of us who cover it, uh, it's been a, a joke that this thing has been in the end game for two years. Uh, if TTIP is only just getting to the mid game, uh, you know, we've got a, 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 a long road ahead there. There's a couple of reasons why um, I, I, I think um, this is, is going to struggle to get done in the Obama administration. One is the complexity of the deal. Um, I think a lot of the conversations feel still like they're only just getting started, um, even though it's been uh, two years. And I think that's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, the uh, other point is I, I, I still think for the US administration, TPP is going to take a lot of energy. Uh, to get through Congress uh, in the next, to close, to scrub, to get the text out, uh, uh, to sell politically. Uh, the administration is really going to be focused on that over the next uh, year or so. I don't think it's a zero-sum game, and, and clearly the, the folks at USTR have argued for a long time that they can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, but uh, there's a question of attention. Uh, and political pressure as well. I think one of the things you, you've seen in TPP is uh, sort of a building urgency uh, over the last two years. For most of the last six to nine months, if not year, uh, the TPP negotiators have been meeting weekly, essentially. Uh, in, in intercessional agreements, uh, they've been on the phone. They've been closing. If you, uh, you know, especially uh, the U.S. and J Japan negotiators uh, have been on the road constantly for 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 most of the last year. Um, so, and I, I don't see that in TTIP uh, right now. I may be missing something, but I, I, I just don't see that accelerated schedule there. I think this, the the other point is that um, the political timeline ahead. Uh, is getting very interesting. Um, I don't think in 2016 uh, TTIP is going to draw quite uh, the opposition or, or, or the heated debate that TPP is here in the US uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, but I'm not sure that in the context of the anti-trade rhetoric we're hearing uh, on both sides, uh, in both parties uh, right now, uh, that even a deal with Europe uh, is going to be immune uh, to, to, to that or some kind of blowback. Uh, you know, the, the, there's an argument that Putin's new Syrian endeavor and, uh, and uh, uh, his other adventurism uh, in Ukraine and so on could help make that geopolitics case uh, in the Congress, but then there's also uh, I, I, I keep wondering, and I was thinking about this on the plane last night, although not for that long, uh, I wonder what Donald Trump would make of TTIP. Uh, if, uh, uh, if TPP is a disaster, uh, uh, what would we think of, um, uh, of TTIP? And, I, and, and I, could, I came up with some fun quotes that uh, I was sort of imagining him them speaking, and then I switched off and moved on to something else. But, they, uh, they, they, uh, uh, but clearly there's, uh, there's a potential grist there. Uh, but I think 2017 is the more important uh, uh, year in terms of the political timeline. And this gets into why uh, I don't think uh, it'll get done in the Obama administration as well. And that has more to do with European politics uh, rather than here domestically. And that is you have three monumental votes uh, in Europe uh, in uh, 2017, and that is the German election, national election, French uh, presidential election, 
and uh, I think equally importantly, the UK referendum uh, on whether or not to be in the uh, remain in the EU. Uh, in each of those elections, uh, I would expect TTIP will be uh, uh, an issue that will be vigorously uh, debated. There were 150,000, 200,000 people in the streets of Berlin uh, on Saturday protesting against TTIP. Uh, that tells you that certainly there are people who feel strongly about this in Germany. Uh, Angela Merkel has been um, treading very carefully on this. Sigmar Gabriel, uh, her coalition partner, even more so, arguably. Um, but you know, across Europe, there are now three million signatures on a petition against um, TTIP. Uh, and that's starting to become uh, a, a big number. I also think that sort of vocal opposition uh, is bleeding into a kind of broader skepticism about TTIP uh, that I hear uh, from some of my colleagues who are asking me as Europeans as much as, uh, as economic journalists, um, but also hear from, uh, from others uh, in the quiet center now. And I think that is... Uh, really, um, really important. Uh, I also think um, uh, the leaders uh, in each of those elections or votes is politically savvy enough to know that um, there is a risk um, uh, for them in this debate. I think the third uh, random thought is that the barriers or stumbling blocks are just not going away. Um, and in fact, they're arguably multiplying uh, in, in different ways. We've long talked about the Snowden effect uh, on, uh, on data uh, and the discussion there, the kind of how it adds to the suspicion across the Atlantic, uh, particularly in Germany. Uh, I think you know, that is still there. I also think the safe harbor decision that we saw recently uh, from the top court in Europe. Uh, it's not technically part of uh, TTIP, but it's emblematic of a, of a, of a broader suspicion. And uh, uh, there, I think that's um, a broader suspicion, but also a, a sort of a combination of jealousy and angst uh, that you see in Europe now when it comes to the issue of innovation uh, and technology companies. Uh, which I think is really interesting and I think will shadow the talks. GMOs, uh, the decision by the European Commission earlier this year to allow member states uh, to opt out of any decision uh, is, is important to recommendations on a firm decision, but clearly it tells you a lot about the European Commission and how they're going to handle the politics. Uh, the ISDS, and I can't believe I've gotten this far uh, without mentioning ISDS, uh, the investor state dispute settlement uh, mechanism and all of the heat around that. Uh, I think there is a view in, in Brussels uh, that they have come up with a solution uh, with a, a recent proposal uh, for a wholesale rewriting of the system. Uh, I think you only have to look at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's uh, incredibly rapid uh, response to that, uh, negative response uh, to that proposal uh, to see why that may be more difficult um, than the Europeans think in terms of the negotiations. Uh, it has two main points, I, as far as I can tell. Uh, the creation of an international court uh, with sitting judges to hear uh, investment cases. It sounds a lot like ICSID uh, to me, uh, a multilateral institution that will hear these investment disputes. Uh, clearly, uh, ICSID 
uh, among opponents is a, is a poison brand, uh, so the Europeans want to come up with something entirely fresh. And the second thing is, a, is an appellate function uh, for uh, investment cases uh, that would allow governments uh, to, to go before a, a panel of sitting judges. I think both fit in very much with this uh, European idea that uh, the answer to a problem is often to set up a new institution. Uh, I don't think that goes down so well, uh, well, particularly in places like this, uh, the, um, um, and here in Washington more broadly. I think there's, you know, there's, there's myriad other questions uh, out there that are, that are building, uh, there's big questions on whether financial services will be included or not. These are things that should have been answered uh, some time ago, I would have thought. The price we pay by turning over our data, usually unwittingly to both the government and the corporate world, is as yet largely unknown. At the Cato Institute's recent conference on surveillance, security expert Bruce Schneier talked about ubiquitous spying in the world we live in today. Metadata reveals who we are. Nobody here lies to the search engine. Right? And it's also easy to store, to search, and to analyze. And this is why you keep hearing the term that we're living in the golden age of surveillance. Right? That, that this is the age of maximal surveillance. And some characteristics about it. It's incidental. Right? It's a side effect of the things we're doing. It's a side effect of being on the internet. It's not what's happening directly, it's happening indirectly. It's covert. And if, you, if you're browsing the internet and there are 20 people behind you taking notes, you're going to look at them and shoo them away. If there are 20 internet trackers in your browser, you don't know they're there. It's not salient, not something we're thinking about. The cameras are getting smaller. A lot of this is becoming less obtrusive. It's hard to opt out of. You'll hear some advice sometimes. If you don't like it, don't use a credit card. Don't be on Facebook. That's not reasonable advice to give people. Don't have an email address. These are the tools of modern life. If you're a teenager on Facebook, you never get a date. You just can't not do that. And it's ubiquitous. It's happening to all of us everywhere because everything is computerized. And ubiquitous surveillance is fundamentally different. Surveillance, we know what it is. Follow that car. Ubiquitous surveillance, follow every car. When you can follow every car, you can do lots of things you can't do. You can do surveillance backwards in time. You heard about hop searches. You can search for topics. You can search for interesting things. Lots of examples in the NSA data of things you can do when you, when you have everyone under surveillance. So this data is largely being collected and used by corporations. And it's important to understand this. Right? Surveillance is the business model of the internet. We build systems that spy on people in exchange for services. And the history is interesting. We, we, we did it really for efficiency reasons. When the net became commercial, there was no good way to charge for anything. And you couldn't charge people a dime, a dollar. I mean, the, the credit cards weren't, didn't go that low yet. You didn't have PayPal. And so you didn't have a mechanism to charge. Companies had to make a profit. So they pulled the advertising model from all the other mass market medias that used it 
Especially on the internet, we all expected to be free. Sites that charged subscriptions just disappeared. And advertising is what was left. And what the net gave you was the ability to personalize. And that was discovered pretty quickly. And this merges with the data broker industry, which came from direct mail. And their job was to divide all of us into lots of little categories so we can get the right junk mail. I mean, that industry melds with the early internet advertising industry, and you get what we have today. Right? You get sites that basically make their business spying on you. Right? That's Google, that's Facebook. And there's a saying we often hear at these conferences, if you're not the customer, you're the product. Remember this when you complain about Google's customer service? They have great customer service. Just become a customer and you can use it. Until then, you don't have access to it. And, and, and this data is collected basically for the purpose of psychological manipulation. Like persuasion, advertising, propaganda, whatever you want to call it. Right? Getting you to do things you might not do otherwise. And it's very personalized. Right? Personalized ads, that's easy. Personalized offers, you know, lots of cases where the prices you see, the offers you see depend on who you are. It might depend on where, your geographical location, what's near you. And we're seeing research, and, and, and haven't seen any actual you know, companies doing this yet that we know of, of personalized manipulation. And, and corporations know an amazing amount about us. Who, know, who knows you're here? Now, your cell phone knows. That's easy. And Google probably knows because you probably got Google Maps enabled, or maybe you have Apple Maps. Uh, did you take an Uber here? Did you buy something with a credit card nearby? Use an ATM machine? Now, any one of the surveillance cameras out there? The number of, of companies that, that track us just simply by the fact that we exist. I, I could mention that you use the Metro. And government surveillance largely piggybacks on these capabilities. We learn from the Snowden documents, NSA uses internet cookies, our logins, cell phone location data, all of this stuff. And it's not that the NSA woke up in the morning and said, let's spy on everybody in the world. They woke up in the morning and said, wow, these corporations are spying on everyone in the world. Let's get ourselves a copy. And they do through a variety of mechanisms. Right? They purchase, through purchase, through compulsion, through coercion, through theft, depending on the data and where it's located and their relationship with the company that has it. And this allows governments, not just the U.S., all governments, to get away with a level of surveillance we would never allow otherwise. You know, would we give a, a copy of our uh, correspondence to the police? No, we would give it to Google. I mean, Steve Bellavan said earlier this, this morning that he runs his own email server. I also don't put my email on Google because I don't want Google to have my email. Last time I checked, and I did check, Google has about a third of my email because you all put your email on Google. <laughs> so the nature of NSA surveillance changed around the same time that we started producing all of this data. And to understand it, you need to really go back to the NSA's history. NSA is born during the Cold War when a voyeuristic interest in the Soviet Union is the norm. And the NSA collected a lot of data about our Cold War enemies. 
right? Some of it useful, most of it not. I mean, it's a lot easier to, to predict the speed of the new Russian main battle tank than it is to predict the fall of communism. And, and that mission waned after the fall of communism. And budgets got lower, and, and the NSA did less surveillance, but that changed. That changed the terrorist attacks on September 11th. Surveillance got a new lease on life, and a very different lease on life. But the intelligence community was given an impossible mission, never again. Right? Ridiculous. But when you, when you have the quixotic goal of preventing something from happening, the only way you could possibly have a chance is to try to know everything that does happen. And when the enemy can be anyone anywhere, your reaction is going to be to spy on everyone everywhere. So the NSA shifted from government-on-government -government espionage to government-on-people surveillance. Remember when we learned that the NSA is spying on Angela Merkel's cell phone? I think that's the one, one NSA revelation. I thought that's, that was exactly what should be done. Right? Spying on foreign leaders, check. It's the other 50 million Germans that we should think about. Right, so from espionage to surveillance and from targeted surveillance to bulk surveillance. At the same time, there's another change that affected how this works. That's the nature of communications. It used to be that the physical communication link determined what the communications were. If you wanted to spy on a Soviet military link between Moscow and Vladivostok, you would know with 100% certainty that there would be no communications from Iowa on that wire. Like the separate links, the separate phone networks, the separate radio networks, separate satellite networks, they were physically different. The internet changes that. The internet doesn't work that way. If you are in Moscow and sending an email to Vladivostok, it will probably go through the United States. And Brazil learned this. They were kind of surprised to learn that all the internet to Europe goes through Florida. That's the way it works. And all the communications are intermingled. So you can't easily pull out Afghani internet conversations, because everything else is, is, is mixed up in there. Right? There's one global communications infrastructure. And we're seeing the same thing happen with storage. Right? The rise of cloud computing means there's one storage infrastructure. I mean, you want to listen in on, I'm going to make this up, on, on Syrians, you've got to go to where they are, which is going to be Gmail, which is going to have everything else too. There's no longer separate storage. Everything is together. Or even, or even further back, that your files will be on your computer. Now they're not, right? You got them all in the cloud. So these few companies hold everything. And they're telecom companies. And they're these service providers. So what we really have, and the way to think about it, is, is a public-private surveillance partnership. I mean, there's a lot of places this, this grates, but both groups are very happy spying on us for reasons of, of, of profit 
and for reasons of, of control. I mean, again, it depends on, on the company in the country. You look at control, you know, some countries doing it for law enforcement and terrorism fighting, some for actual social control and protecting against new ideas. But the groups are, are, are pretty much uh, in line. And you see a lot going back and forth. I mean, corporations mine government databases all the time. Governments leverage corporate data collection all the time. Lots of private corporations support government surveillance whether it's government contractors building this stuff. I assure you the Utah data facility is not being built by government employees. It's a lot of very valuable contracts building that. Right? Surveillance technology providers, cyber weapons arms manufacturers selling this technology, both to uh, US at the local level and, and to lots of countries around the world that you probably don't want to have this technology. I mean, there's a whole security industrial complex. And this makes it hard to pass reform. But you're not going to see privacy laws protecting us in the market as long as the government wants the data that comes that way. I mean, you're not going to see major government reform as long as there's a lot of lobbying dollars making profit off, off of surveillance. And this gets to be a very hard problem. Now, we are seeing breaks. We heard earlier about, about the, the, the case involving uh, Microsoft and, and data held in Ireland. I think there's a difference in, in generation here. The telcos went through the Cold War assisting NSA surveillance. Right? So when, you, when the NSA went to AT&T and said, we want to spy on the internet, they said, great, put your stuff in that closet over there, lock the door, don't tell anybody. Right? You know, when, when they went to Yahoo and Yahoo said, no, I'm going to go take you to court. I, I think that's very generational. And I like seeing the fact that right now, there is PR value in fighting. I mean, Apple is making a lot of hay on, you know, we're not going to cooperate with the NSA. There was a debate between uh, Tim Cook and Admiral Rogers a couple of days ago at an event. I haven't seen the transcript yet, but supposedly it was pretty good. Now you're seeing Microsoft and Yahoo and Facebook and companies really doing more work. But I, to me, this is around the edges. I mean, you still have the, the largest, I mean, the two largest collections of, of tagged photos are, are inside the NSA, I'm sorry, inside the NSA and inside Facebook. And the Facebook ones are being mined by government. Uh, there was an article a couple of days ago about uh, the DNA databases by companies like 23andMe being pulled at by the FBI who wants it in their DNA database. So I think it's really dangerous for, for very fundamental reasons. In, 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 the, uh, in the corporate side, it, we, have, we have problems of fairness and equality. How much surveillance-based discrimination do we accept? How much surveillance-based manipulation? Right? Is it okay for one group to see different prices than another group? And we know there have been experiments in showing people ads in ways that are more manipulative. Right? For example, you are more likely to respond to an ad if the pitch person, if the image looks like you. And there have been experiments done, not by showing you as the image, that's creepy, but by using morphing technology and showing a, a generic image and you and mixing them together to a face that looks sort of like you, you're more likely to purchase the thing being advertised. Is that okay? Right? Is it moral? Should it be legal? I don't know. We have to talk about this. And Facebook has done experiments where they, you know, not a lot, but can manipulate moods of their users. Is that okay? 
Is it okay for an advertiser to pay Facebook to manipulate your mood so you're more receptive to the ad that they're going to show you? We don't think it's been done, but is that okay? Right? We, we know Facebook can, and this is done in a, just an experiment, uh, manipulate uh, whether people go to the polls or not. Should they be able to do that based on what they believe your political affiliation is? Again, it is, would be legal for them too, probably would be a big scandal if they tried, but it might be worth it. Is that okay? I mean, there are some core issues about this data being used as, as a market tool. Because, you know, the fairness of the exchange that makes a market is being threatened. Right? There are issues of security here. I mean, the infrastructure surveillance, I believe, hurts our security because it enables other surveillance. An interesting example are our stingrays. People know what stingrays are. Stingrays are basically fake cell phone towers. Uh, the FBI puts the stingray is a trade name by Harris Corporation. The, uh, the, the general thing is a uh, IMSI catcher. And you can put one up, or the FBI does, and it can, will get information about phones in the air. So they'll know who's here and use that to uh, try to solve crimes. And that was an incredibly secret FBI technology. I mean, they would literally drop cases if it became clear this would come up in court. And the thing about this really super secret FBI technology is it's not super secret FBI technology. It, lots of countries can do this. You right now can go on Alibaba.com and buy yourself an IMSI catcher for $1,000. A couple of years ago, uh, one of the online magazines uh, drove a, a van that detects these things around DC and uh, found like 30 or 40 of them around embassies and government buildings run by we have no idea who. Right? It's your choice. If we build an architecture of surveillance, it means that anybody can use it. And the thing about all this NSA bulk collection is that it's too easy. When everyone can do it, it actually hurts our security. Because remember, today's top secret NSA programs that come tomorrow's PTCs, these are the next day's hacker tools. The stuff flows downhill as technology gets easier. And, and lastly, this matters for privacy. I mean, what was striking about the video and the conversation was how much this loss of privacy affects human dignity. I mean, privacy is not about something to hide. It is about whether I get to control how I present myself to the world, to you. It's my autonomy as a person that I'm in charge of my information, of where that goes. It has become increasingly difficult to differentiate climate science from rhetoric. In a new ebook, Luke Warming, The New Climate Science That Changes Everything, Cato scholars Pat Michaels and Paul Knappenberger explain the science and spin behind the headlines and come to a provocative conclusion. Global warming is more lukewarm than hot. Although climate change is real and partially man-made, it is becoming obvious that far more warming has been forecast than is going to occur, and some of the catastrophic impacts can be shown to be implausible or impossible. You can get your copy of Lukewarming at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month. <laughs>